With most of our time through the year on Sundays is we preach and teach through parts of God's Word, and we're up to these chapters of uh, 2 Kings 16 and 17 this week. So let me pray, lots to cover, but let me pray that God might give us great clarity uh, as we hear His Word. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a speaking God, and we pray that as we hear this word now of yours from two kings, uh, that we would hear it as your word, not of some obscure word, but as the word of the creator of all things, a word that is given for our good and for our understanding. So help us now to understand, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you might recall uh, Albert Einstein's famous quote on the definition of insanity. It's up on the screen. He reportedly said this, uh, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. And uh, as I think of that quote, I'll just wait for that phone. Uh, as I think of that quote I, I, and hear that quote, I think, hasn't that been one in two kings? If you've been with us from the beginning, uh, going through the books of 1 and 2 Kings. Hasn't this been 1 and 2 Kings? Over and over again, the people of God have, have been under judgment. Over and over again, the people of God have found themselves persecuted and oppressed and struck by disaster. And over and over again, when we found ourselves reading these things, we find ourselves thinking, well, what did you expect? What did you think would happen? God was clear. God had promised, God had warned. He said, do not be unfaithful to me, your God, because if you are, disaster will come. Judgment will come. See, one and two kings, it's been pure madness. You see, the people, the, the kings, they keep being unfaithful, somehow thinking, well, this time in our rejection of God, it's going to work out. It's going to be good. And this time, our worshipping of other gods who aren't really gods, that's going to bring salvation. But it's madness. It's insanity. You see, as we come to chapters 16 and 17, we see unfaithfulness in action yet again. And then we see the results of unfaithfulness is disaster, is judgment yet again. But this time, there's a finality to it. And this is one of those what not to do parts of the Bible. Uh, there's nothing good in these chapters. If you reread all of chapter 16 and 17, you won't find any glimmer of hope. Uh, you won't find any great word of assurance. It's all very depressing, I'm sorry, uh, to bring you down and bring you to a downer on a Sunday morning. But this is a lesson. It's a lesson for us, and it's a lesson for our entire world to hear and to heed. It's madness it's insanity to reject God and be unfaithful to God and expect anything other than disaster, than judgment. And it all kicks off with the worst of all the kings of Judah. And this is point one on your handout, if you've got your handout there. Point one, unfaithfulness in action, King Ahaz of Judah. Uh, let, me, let me show you uh, what King Ahaz is like. Look from verse one of chapter 16. Make sure you've got your Bible there. Flick back to chapter 16 if you need to. You're flying blind without your Bibles. Chapter 16, verse 1, it says this, In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, that's the king of Israel in the north, Ahaz, son of Jotham, became king of Judah in the south. Remember the split kingdom, north and south? Well, Ahaz is the king in the south. And then look at from the middle of verse 2, middle of verse 2, he, Ahaz, did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, like his ancestor David, but walked in the way of the kings of Israel from the north. 
He even made his son pass through the fire. And what a shock as we begin chapter 16. You see, that the last four kings of Judah, if you remember last week, they weren't great. They, they didn't remove the idols from the land. But Ahaz, this guy's horrendous. This, this is next level. He's, don't, don't mishear what's being said here in verse 3. He's sacrificing his kids to these pagan idol gods. He, he's burning them. So this is next level. And look at verse 4. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. You see, this is outright idolatry. It's as bad as it can get. And at this point, as readers, as most of us have been for a long time in 1 and 2 Kings, as readers, we're thinking, but hold on, wasn't Judah in the south, weren't they supposed to be the good ones? Wasn't that the promised line? I get the kings of the north in Israel did that sort of stuff, but never the kings of the south, never the kings of Judah. See, that's what we're thinking as we're reading. And yet it only gets worse because in the next scene, we see how truly lost Ahaz, the king of the south, is. See, look from verse 5. Verse 5, Aram's king Rezin, so that was a pagan king, and Israel's king Pekah, who was the king in the north, they came to, war, to wage war against Ahaz in Jerusalem. So imagine two warring parties and Ahaz, the king of south. These two warring parties, they're coming against Ahaz to, to basically take his city and take his people. And in 2 Chronicles 28, we get information, a lot of information about this particular war. And these two nations, Aram and Israel, who come to Ahaz with their armies, they, they smash him. 120,000 of Ahaz's soldiers fall in one day. It's an annihilation. And more than that, in 2 Chronicles, it makes it really clear that it's God who handed Ahaz and Judah over to these two nations, seeking to destroy him. And so at this point, you'd expect Ahaz to come to his senses and turn back to God. That's what you'd expect Ahaz to do. You'd expect Ahaz to search the history records and look at the history books and see, well, whenever the people of Judah in the south were in trouble, whenever a foreign army came to take them over, what the kings did in the past is they turned back to God. Whenever they came under pressure from foreign armies because of their unfaithfulness, they turned back to God for help. They asked God to save them. And so with Ahaz, you expect him to repent. You expect him to lament over his sin and, and realize his unfaithfulness and turn back to God and say, God, help, please. We're desperate. But what does Ahaz do? Where does he go? Look at verse 7. So Ahaz, the king of the south in Judah, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilesar, the king of Assyria, who was a pagan king, saying to him, this pagan king, I am your servant and your son. March up and save me from the power of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. And don't mishear this. This is a sad day for the history of God's kings and particularly for the history of the kingdom of the south. Did you notice what Ahaz says there to the, to the king of Assyria? The king of Assyria, he, he's a man. He's a mere mortal. And he says to that man, he says, I am your servant. I am your son. You save me. So this is idolatry. And it's stupidity. It's, it's unfaithfulness. It's not, like, it's not like Ahaz simply forgot the Lord, his God, and who the Lord God was. 
and, and the power of his God to save. That's what makes this scene so, so sad because God had said to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7, he said about this whole situation, it's up on the screen, God had said to Ahaz, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and he said to him, calm down, be quiet, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering stubs of firebrands, the, the fierce anger of King Rezin of Arang and, and, and King Pekah of Israel. In other words, don't worry about these, these two nations coming against you, God said to Ahaz. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. I've, I've got this. They won't capture you. In Isaiah 7, God says to Ahaz, stand firm in your faith. Trust me. God even offers Ahaz a sign. He says to Ahaz, I'll give you a sign. Ask me for a sign and I'll give you a sign to reassure you that I've got this. Ask and I'll show you that it will be okay. Trust me, I'll save you. And even in all that, what does Ahaz do? Where did Ahaz go to help when the pressure came? He went to some mere man. Went to some mere mortal king of Assyria, the wicked ruler of a foreign nation. You see, this is a real low point. And sure, if you read verse 9, look at verse 9. When you read verse 9, so the king of Assyria listened, the pagan king listened to Ahaz, and he marched up to Damascus, which is the capital of Aram, and he captured it. And so at first you read this and you think, okay, sure, in the short term, Ahaz's unfaithfulness to God seems to pay off. His pact with this foreign Assyria empire seems to work, but he's just made a deal with a greater enemy. With an enemy that, as we'll see in a moment, puts an end to Israel in the north, and as we'll see in a couple of weeks, almost puts an end to Judah in the south. You see, Ahaz should have gone to God for help. And it raises a question for us, I think. You see, where do we go for help? If I can push it a bit, even when we're facing the consequences of our own sin or the guilt of our own sin, because that's what Ahaz was facing here. The the reason Aram and Israel came against Ahaz and Judah was because of his unfaithfulness, because of the unfaithfulness of the people. That's why he's in trouble. But even in those moments when we're facing the consequences of our own sin, where do we go for help? And in many ways, we're not like Ahaz. We don't, we don't turn to full-blown idolatry. Uh, we, we won't read it now because we don't have time. But if you skim your eyes over verses 10 to 20, Ahaz then lives out full-blown idolatry. Uh, it's wickedness. He removes the right items of worship of God from the temple of God and, and puts instead idol worships, uh, 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 things to, to worship of the Assyrian gods. No king of Judah has done that so far. No king has been so outright in his idolatry. But the real problem with Ahaz, it's not that full-blown idolatry. That's just a symptom. Now, his, his problem was his refusal to turn to God for help. His problem was his refusal to believe that only God is truly powerful to save and to help. And not only is God powerful, but he's willing. Remember, God made Ahaz a promise. He said, ask me and I'll do this for you. I promise. God promised him, I've got this, stand firm in your faith, come to me in your need. And you see, that can be our problem. We can fail to believe how powerful and how willing God is to help us. We can forget that God promises us in everything, I've got this, doesn't matter what happens, trust me. Even more so, we can look to what God has done already in Jesus, his son, and see that he's got this. 
So let me ask you the question, where do you turn to when you need help? Where do you turn even in the sorrow and the consequences of your own sin? Which again is is why Judah found themselves under siege. It's the consequence of their sin. In those moments, do we only turn to other people for help? To friends, to family, even to professionals to, 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 to counsel us and guide us. But how often in our time of need do we seek first the Lord? You see, that's what faithfulness looks like. First of all, in all things, with every need, seeking and trusting the Lord. Or when we realize the consequence of our own sin and we see the trouble that we get ourselves into because we know we've been unfaithful, what do we do at that point? Do, do we stand too ashamed to come to God in our guilt? Do we try and look to ourselves to deal with our own guilt and, and then keep it from God because we're ashamed? In God's promise of forgiveness to us, Do we humbly repent and lean on that promise? Or like Ahaz, do we ignore God's promises? You see, do we realize that God is powerful and willing to help us, to forgive us, to save us? I love how Charles Spurgeon uh, speaks about this. He compares the idol worship of his day and what the, the pagan idol worshipers were like and how committed those idolaters were to what the Christian was like and how slow the Christian was to seek the Lord. He says this, it's up on the screen. Uh, Spurgeon writes, he says, Look at the poor idolater. They put up a piece of wood or stone and they call it God and how they use it. They want rain. The idolaters assemble and they ask this wooden thing for rain in the firm but foolish hope that their God can give it. There's a battle. And what do they do? Well, their God is lifted up and goes before them to lead them in victory. Oh, how those idol pagan worshippers use their God, though they're no gods at all. And then Spurgeon says of the Christian, he says, but how seldom do we ask counsel at the hands of the Lord? How often do we go about our business without asking his help? In our troubles, how constantly do we strive to bear our burdens instead of casting them upon the Lord? You see, when you read about Ahaz in chapter 16, we didn't read it, but do it later during the week. When you read about Ahaz uh, and all the wrong and evil he did, because if you read chapter 16, there's nothing good. But the heart of the issue was his failure to believe that only God can save. And that God is willing to save and able to save in everything. But he would not listen. He was unfaithful. And if you get to, uh, as you get to the end of chapter 16, he dies as an unfaithful. And now with chapter 17, we see what happens to those unfaithful. So we're up to point two now, the results of unfaithfulness. And we've got to, we've got to switch our minds now because chapter 16, that was following the line of Judah in the south, the southern kingdom. Uh, But now, with chapter 17, we're back into the line of Israel in the north. Back with the northern kings and the northern kingdom. And this is is the last time we'll need to do this. This is the last time we'll come to that northern line of Israel. And it's the last time, because as I said two weeks ago with chapter 13, chapter 13 was the beginning of the end for the northern kingdom of Israel. And now, as we read chapter 17, this is the history of their end. This is it. Uh, Israel, they're destroyed in this chapter. So follow with me from verse 1 of chapter 17. Chapter 17 now, verse 1. So we read, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king over Israel. And verse 3, go down to verse 3. 
Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, that's that pagan king, the next pagan king in Assyria. So Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, attacked him. And Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. But the king of Assyria discovered Hoshea's conspiracy. He had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and had not paid tribute money to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore, the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, that is the whole land of Israel in the north, marched up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And in verse 6, look at verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Hala and by the harbour, Gozan's river and in the cities of the Medes. And that's the end of Israel in the north. And all of this, it's very interesting history. Uh, you can read all about the empire of, of, of Assyria in all sorts of books outside of the Bible. Uh, and what Assyria would do is exactly this. Their technique was, okay, we'll invade the land. So here they are, they invade the land of uh, Israel in the north. And then what they do is they get the people from that land and they deport them to other lands, to other places. And then what they do on top of that is they get other people and then import them into the land they've just acquired. That was their technique. Uh, they did that so then the people groups would all be scattered and they couldn't rise up as one against Assyria. That was their technique. It worked. But that's what we need to keep remembering with these chapters. That these are real people, uh, real places, real history. And just as an example, up on the screen, uh, there's this uh, image of a carving of an Assyrian soldier. So the soldiers we just read about. But the Assyrian soldier there, if you look closely in his hand, uh, it's a bit grotesque. He's waving the heads of their Judean captives around. And we'll see this in a few weeks' time. So this is, this is where Ahaz is packed with the kingdom of Assyria, gets Judea. This is where Judah goes. They, they end up getting uh, besieged by Assyria and they, they behead the soldiers and the people uh, of that country. It's horrific. But keep remembering, this is real history, real events. But did you notice just how little is written about Israel's destruction here? There's not a lot of detail. All you get is this of the historical detail is there in verse 5. The king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, Samaria and besieged it for three years. That's all you get. And in verse 6, they get deported. That's it. Full stop. No more, no more details. And that's because the Bible here is less interested in how this happened and much more interested in why it happened. And this is verses uh, 7 to 23 of chapter 17 that John had read out for us before. And again, we don't have time to look at it all in detail. But as you heard Jana read it out, none of it is complicated. I hope you notice that. None of it is hard to understand. Why was Israel destroyed? Because they were unfaithful. And let me just quickly show you what Israel were like in chapter 17. See, so look at the end of verse 7. What was Israel like? End of verse 7. They worshipped other gods. Verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. They lived according to the customs of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed. Verse 9, the Israelites secretly did what was not right against the Lord their God, which, which is the height of stupidity. If God is God, nothing is secret. He sees everything. Verse 10, look at verse 10. What did they do? They set up sacred pillars and asherah poles. Verse 11, 
They burned incense on all the high places. Verse 12, they served idols. Verse 16, look at verse 16. They abandoned all the commands of the Lord their God and made cast images for themselves. And verse 17, they sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They devoted themselves not to God, but to do what was evil. And so you read that and then you think it's not hard to see and understand what Israel were like. They were unfaithful. And even though, if you look at verse 13, look at verse 13, even though the Lord had warned them when they messed up and gave them a chance to turn from their evil ways in verse 13, then look at verse 14, which is the key verse. Look at, look at what, they, what happens in verse 14. Even though God warned them, they, Israel, would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate, that is, stubborn and stick-necked like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. It's not difficult to understand why Israel gets destroyed. What's the result of unfaithfulness? It's judgment. So look at verse 18. Verse 18, in light of all that they did, therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, even though he warned them, even though he gave them grace and mercy to repent, he was very angry with Israel because they didn't listen and he removed them from his presence. And you might have seen this timeline before that's up on the screen, uh, especially if you've done Intro to the Bible or are doing Intro to the Bible now, but it's called the, uh, the coat hanger timeline for obvious reasons. But can you see, if you look at it, can you see what happens to the line of the northern kingdom of Israel on the right? You can see what happens to them on the right. See, the, the, the big dot there in the middle of, uh, of the, the picture, that's when the kingdom splits in two, where the kind of coat hanger starts. And you've got Judah on the left, uh, and you've got Israel on the right. And you see the Judah line on the left-hand side, it keeps on going. But Israel, what happens to them? It's no more. They're, they're removed from the presence of God. It ceases to exist as a nation and as a kingdom. And that is what we must learn from these chapters unfaithfulness to God never pays. And so I want to finish with three quick applications. But here is where we need to be careful as we apply this passage. Next slide. Thanks, Mukesh. See, sometimes uh, we look upon Israel and we look to Ahaz and we think, that's just not me. I'm not doing what they're doing. I'm not like that. I I don't make some wooden god and then worship it. I don't live out full-blown idolatry. I'm not tempted by you know, going face down before something and worshipping something or an Asherah pole or, or a god like Baal. That's not me. This is not for me. But it's really interesting when you read carefully what happens with Israel and what God warned Israel about. You see, God warned them primarily about becoming like the people around them. Do you remember that as we've read through 1 and 2 Kings? Yes, God warns them about idol worship, but primarily he warns them not to do what the people around them do. Not to be like them because it will take them away from God. And if you quickly look in chapter 17 at verse 8 and verse 15, if you quickly scan your eyes over verse 8 and verse 15, the warning there from God was, don't live according to the customs of the people around you. And verse 15, it was, don't imitate the lives of the people around you. See, now in Israel's day, in Ahaz's day, the people around them, what did they do? They worshipped idols. 
They made idols for themselves. They prostituted themselves to those idols. That's what they did to Baal and the like. That's why Ahaz and Israel went into full-blown idolatry and worshipped those things too. But that's not what the people around us do, is it? That's not what people in our Western world do. You see, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does unfaithfulness look like in our world? What does it look like to imitate the people around us today instead of imitating Jesus? Here's a scary question for us to ask ourselves, and I say scary because as I ask it, it scares me. Are we in danger of being unfaithful in living like the world instead of living like Jesus? Are we in danger of living for our world instead of living for Jesus? Uh, John Chapman, he wrote a great little book called A Foot in Two Worlds. If you've never read it, you should. And he writes this. It's up on the screen. He says this. He says, next slide, thanks, Mukesh. Thank you. He says this. He says, it is very possible to be a Christian and still adopt the attitudes of the world. We live in the same sorts of houses as everyone else. We take the same holidays. Our aspirations for ourselves and our children seem very like the pagan world around us. We view, next slide, we view retirement as a holiday. And apart from church on Sunday, our lifestyle seems no different to everyone else's. It's very easy to slip into thinking like everyone else in the world around us. And isn't that true? And don't we struggle with this to some degree? I, I do. I'm sure you do as well. And please don't mishear me. There's so much to thank God for about the world we live in. So many blessings, uh, so many gifts from our Father in heaven that we are to receive with thanksgiving and accept them from him with thanksgiving. But isn't that a great question to ask ourselves? Am I being unfaithful in living like the world and exactly like them and for this world instead of living like and for Jesus? It's a very important question to ask. Because the warning of these chapters from what Ahaz and Israel were like when they imitated the people around them, the warning from those chapters was, in your unfaithfulness, you know what the result is? It's judgment, which is my next point. And again, I did warn you that this was going to be a bit of a depressing sermon and a bit of a sad one, but that, that's what we have. This is a warning to us. We must hear this. Our world actually needs to hear this. Rejecting God and unfaithfulness to God never pays. So if you're a Christian, don't be deceived. The way of the world and being exactly like the world in the end only leads to judgment. So don't imitate the world. And if you're not yet a Christian, do not be deceived. This world, it promises you so much. It promises all of us so much. But in the end, the only thing our world can deliver is judgment. You see, part of the reason God has given us one and two kings is to stop us living out Einstein's definition of insanity. What we, what we need to do is learn from Israel that over and over again, Israel, what did she think? Israel thought and Israel reasoned that somehow this time, unfaithfulness to God's going to work out. It's going to be good this time. It's going to be good. It's okay not to listen to God. It's going to work out. And every time, it failed. Every time, disaster. Every time, judgment and what happens in the end for israel they're removed from the presence of god as a kingdom forever you see that's what awaits every unfaithful human being and we can't shy away from that that is what god tells us but just to ignore some glimmer of hope into this sermon as i finish i just want to remind us of the kindness of god 
to such unfaithful people like us. And that actually unfaithfulness need not result in judgment. Uh, I, love, uh, I love the parables that Jesus gives in Luke 15. You might remember them. Jesus gives three parables. Uh, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And uh, with each of those parables, this is, this is great rejoicing when those lost things are found. The sheep, the coin, uh, the, the son. When they're found, it's rejoicing. And the point of those three parables is to teach us how much God rejoices when the lost sinner, when the unfaithful person repents and returns to God their Father and Creator. So do you realize how much God rejoices when a person comes to Him in their unfaithfulness? When they approach God for Him for forgiveness, God rejoices in that. You see, the kindness of God to the unfaithful person is incredible. Be it the the Christian who's committed an unfaithful act or has been unfaithful in a time, in a thing, or be it the non-Christian coming to God for the very first time, our God is the kind of God who rejoices when we come to Him for help, even in unfaithfulness. You see, unfaithfulness need not result in judgment. That, that's, that's a thing with Ahaz and, and, and Israel in these chapters. All of it is so sad, but it's so avoidable. God promised. He said, you've been unfaithful, but repent, turn. It need not lead to judgment. See, we, lead, we read these chapters and we think, if only they would turn to God. See, the incredible thing is that Jesus, in his faithfulness to his Father on that cross, Jesus deals with our unfaithfulness. And that is the hope that drives us to live for Jesus and be like Jesus and so live those faithful lives we've been saved to live. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we read these chapters and in many ways we're confronted and we're saddened, but we see so clearly that unfaithfulness to you never pays. It leads to judgment. And we pray, Father, that we would never leave ourselves in unfaithfulness. Help us always to come to you for help. Help us always to know that you are the God who rejoices when you're unfaithful. Come to you and ask for forgiveness. And for this, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus, your son. Amen.